Okay, uh, so first of all, I just want to thank you guys for being here. Thank all of you. Everyone was chosen based out of their um, role in the contemporary art world, also their role in the community and what you've done in your areas, in your expertise. And um, I really appreciate taking the time to, to talk about what we're going to talk about. So the title of this panel is The Role of the Traditional Art Gallery Amid George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter America and What Now? Question mark, exclamation point, because why not? Um, so this has been, I feel like this topic is something that uh, is like the elephant in the room. We're not gonna be able to get to the entire elephant, maybe just a leg or a trunk, but like, I think that this conversation can also continue and should continue in everyone's cities and everyone's state, everywhere, um, within, in, within whether it's local or international. So I wanna thank you and also, talk about like why we're here. And the reason of why is, first of all, we are responding to just off, the, off of you know, general purpose is the George Floyd uh, murder video that I really have just watched how the world has been responding to this push and need for change. And it started with, this whole thing started with the Alice Wilds Gallery, so thank you, where um, Tina, who's a manager at the gallery, just asked a very simple question. We were just having a conversation and she's like, I don't really know what we, like, I know we should do something, but I'm not sure what. And I said, I don't know either. And I'm a part of the, the art world, I'm a part of the market too, but I said, let's just start a conversation with each other, local community, and let's try to get um, people in the community to ask the questions. Because we, because I, the community has a lot to say. So that's how this all started, and that's how we're here. So I just want to thank you guys again. And um, the first thing I'm going to do is start the first question is going to go to Anais Khan. And um, let me put my questions for a moment. And then we'll just jump right in there. I have a lot of stuff on my um, desktop. Here we go. Okay. So the first question, and, which is actually to um, An, and just for the people watching, these questions specifically came from people in the community posted their questions, either direct message or onto the Instagram post for the outlets. And I was looking at this question on, and I was like, you tackled a really tricky one. <laughs> so thank you. And this is, um, and any, the other way we're gonna do this is anyone can answer, jump in once on is done. Um, so question is, as a cultural institution, um, or a person who works at a cultural institution, what will you do to uplift black and brown voices and how will you commit to do your part to dismantle the systems of white supremacy that non-black institutions profit off of? That's a tricky one. <laughs> it's a big one. Um, so I just wrote out right my answer. I don't know if other folks are doing that or if they're just answering That's off the cuff. Cool. But... I totally did the same thing. Okay, great. <laughs> um, so before answering this question, it seems important to clarify what systems of white supremacy non-Black institutions profit off of and what a non-Black institution is. All arts institutions profit from art capital, physical artworks, relationships with artists, art programming, art resources, or knowledge. The way white supremacy shows up is in terms of legit legitimization which artworks will be shown or collected, which artworks will be funded or promoted, whose analysis of artistic trends will be trusted, 
these kinds of white supremacy show up at both black and non-black institutions. Committing to making an arts ecosystem that doesn't rely on legitimization to survive is a long-term game as it requires a revolution in funding structures, staff and board structures, institutional policies, and relationships between arts organizations. It would mean a non-hierarchical art world, a true network rather than a ladder to be climbed. This sounds abstract, but there are concrete ways that all arts orgs can decenter the idea of legitimization in their work. One, commit to only working with funders who understand your vision for racial justice. This might mean a cut in funding. Be prepared to reimagine the work you do accordingly. Two, reorganize your arts organization so that leadership is spread throughout, not centered at the top. This means putting staff in the position to make decisions for the organization as a whole and having a board with some staff members on it. Three, Needless to say, a staff that doesn't reflect the diversity of the world you're hoping to build isn't acceptable. Four, build your commitments to non-hierarchical organizing and racial justice into your strategic planning to ensure the longevity of your actions. Factor in ongoing and long-term forms of incentive. And lastly, commit to working closely with other organizations doing similar work and share resources. I currently work at two arts organizations with racial justice missions. One, Recess, is based in Brooklyn, and all of our full-time staff are people of color except our executive director. The other, the Center for Afrofuturist Studies, an artist residency program for black artists, which is run and founded by me, but my other two teammates are white. It's unclear to me in both cases whether the organization is a black institution or not, and honestly, in the case of our work, it doesn't much matter to me. For organizations that are staffed primarily by white people or organizations that don't have an explicit racial justice lens, focus on transforming internally before you take on external change. Nothing you do will be lasting or meaningful if your staff is still all white or if your funders don't believe in the necessity for racial justice. Yeah, absolutely beautiful. So this is a moment where the um, other panelists, you guys can kind of come in and respond to Anne's um, statement. And if you want to jump in there or raise the hand. Okay, uh, Josh. Hi, uh, you pointed out one thing that I've kind of always thought about and I've never really known how much of a hindrance this is, but I think it was your first point of changes eliminate uh, people that are funding these institutions that don't believe in your core values. And I, I've always wondered how, how much that does um, impact bigger institutions if they were to, you know, cut out, uh, rip out the, the root and stem of the, some of the core issues. Um, and that's, that, that's kind of a question slash I've always been curious about that. Um, Josh, a really good book to read that I've been making my way through is called, I actually have it right here, um, The Revolution Will Not Be Funded Beyond the Nonprofit Industrial Complex. And this is for more like nonprofit art museums. But um, I think it, I, it just completely transformed the way that I was thinking about how traditional funding works within nonprofit institutions. And I think it's a really good resource. Thank you. 
May I jump in? Uh, you know, I, I think An, you brought up a really good point too about, you know, the entire structure of uh, the museum world, the gallery world uh, was created to tell these uh, narratives uh, essentially of white supremacy, um, you know, but the entire function of how museums and galleries work is that they have these really strong narratives um, and, you know, I. I think your point of kind of you need to restructure how the actual business model works is is really important if the messages that you're sharing um, want to you know collaborate with what you're actually doing. Yeah, and Lucy, I'm sorry, I was trying to say that I forgot I was on mute. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I will I will wait to respond because I, I I think. My my question's coming up soon, and I think it's going to kind of speak yeah. to this this conversation right now. Awesome. I have something. Um, like, speaking about gallery staffs or museum staffs, I feel like the art world feels so difficult to penetrate. And, you know, I think one of the things I've seen is, you know, unpaid internships. And not everyone can take an unpaid internship, so they can't even get your foot in the door. So already you're eliminating so many people who simply can't do that. And I think the gallery and the museum world needs to get rid of that because it doesn't work for so many people. And that shouldn't, you know, you look at um, job applications, it's like, oh, you, you, you know, you have to have two years of intern experience and 10 years of gallery experience. Well, how are people supposed to do that if they're unable to take these unpaid internships? It makes it incredibly difficult to do so. So it's just an issue that I've been seeing and I have such a, a problem with it. Michelle? Yeah, I have a couple things. And, and these, uh, these observations are specific to collecting institutions, but uh, in legacy uh, institutions as well, but other not-for-profits. And um, just a couple observations, um, uh, and actually some positions, a position on my behalf. Um, the first is we need, I believe institutions need to build knowledge and not rely on data. I sit on the board of many institutions and it's always data that's thrown at us, and that's a problem. Um, the other thing uh, that I find absolutely disingenuous is that we have to pay admission at a gate. So when we have institutions really thinking about how they're going to reach out to communities, um, you know, this is a shift that's going on. I can speak specifically to the Milwaukee Art Museum. We just went through a strategic plan. And, you know, I, I just find it really problematic. It's socially and economically discriminating. And when we're trying to bring in, and this is a quote from uh, the Milwaukee Art Museum's uh, commitment um, in their community strategic plan, presenting a broad variety of art and feature underrepresented artists across history, including women and people of color. Everybody has to have access to that. And admission at a gate prevents that access. Yeah. We actually have time for um, one more comment from the group. Uh, yeah, one of the things that I wanted to respond to was your use of the word legitimacy and the role of museum institution to legitimize an artist's career. And, and I feel like that's such an important thing to hone in on, especially since there are a lot of fine artists who appropriate from, say, street art, craft art, 
from from ancient artworks and that um, and that they appropriate from these art forms that are often not seen as legitimate in the fine art high art world um, until somebody else uses it in their work as fine art and so I just that that was something that, that really stood out to me as uh, as a core concept here to hone in on yeah yeah thank you guys we're going to go to um, question two which is um, to Lucy and all right, so this is um, one of the questions that came directly into my direct message from Tanika Word, who is a artist living in Milwaukee, but she also started something on an organization on Instagram called Black Women of Print. And um, so the question is, how does an organization or institution with a history of inequity shift its historical narrative to serve communities that they're unfamiliar with? Um. Yeah, and that's a, that's, a, that's a good question and a hard question, and I only have a couple minutes, so I'll try to tackle it. Maybe I should have written something down, but I, I kind of wanted to speak off the cuff. But um, I think, I think um, going back to the earlier discussion about, you know, the, the, the role of capital in this conversation um, and that the, the, the fact that this conversation seems to be the, the, the elephant in the room that a lot of people don't want to talk about. Um, I've, I've noticed that, you know, over the course of, you know, the, the, the past couple weeks that a lot of these um, cultural institutions and art galleries have been participating and giving lip service to equity and diversity and, you know, that, 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 that black square has come to sort of represent probably the full extent to which these most of these these institutions and galleries will go. Um, I I I I definitely agree that um, for there to be a sort of sustained change in these spaces, there there's going to have to be um, a radical restructuring of, of how these systems work and operate and who makes up these systems. Um, I actually recently read this um, article by, uh, her name is Olivia Anani. The, the title of this article, you can find it on theartnewspaper.com. Can the art market be an ally in the fight for racial equality? And there was a particular line in the article where she says, can the market ever be an ally? And I think I'm, I'm, I might be um, changing up the words just a little, but, but that, that, that really um, packed a punch in terms of can we ever rely on capitalism to affect the changes that we want? And, and obviously you can't think about, you can't really think of a whole host of equities and not think about how they all intersect with capitalism. And, you know, I'm a full proponent of, you know, uh, as someone who's, who's worked in the, 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 the art scene that, you know, there, there is a, a place for these art galleries in particular. I don't know if the, the, the um, person asking the question is, is particularly interested in, in art galleries, but that's kind of where I'm, I'm kind of angling. But um, I, I think I, I see, you know, I think through history, art history, particularly, we've seen how um, galleries have, have um, served as these spaces that grant visibility to a lot of artists who who might not have had that that visibility otherwise, right? So, 
so capital and money can kind of provide the backing right to 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 to, to artists who um need money to work literally right um but at the same time there there are the the power dynamics of the patron and artist that um are embedded in in these spaces right and and it's the, the the spaces the people who have the capital backing to then say well your artwork we like this artwork we think it can sell so therefore we're going to support you and that's always going to have some problems in terms of which artists get that support and how they get that support i think the art gallery operates on a lot of sort of you know there's a lot of mystification around who gets to be part of this world and who doesn't and is it about talent or is it about something else or is it a mixture of the two um so i mean i i i can go on and on but i think you know we might have to look at i think you know nonprofit art galleries have have be kind of are this sort of niche 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 model that you know don't don't have the same type of grandstanding in the art world but they might be a model that we, we need to look to that, you know, because they don't operate solely on by the market and they don't just run on market trends that they have more, I think, more leeway and more freedom to, to really speak to what the artists envision their, their, their practice being and, and, and not really solely basing it on, on, on what the market is demanding. Um, and I think we can speak, I can talk a lot more about even just thinking about um, where these art galleries are situated geographically and, and the whole East, West Coast kind of, you know, heavyweight model and, and who gets left behind in these conversations. I can go on. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to press mute. Okay. I'm going to press mute. So it's like we do small the Tupac of the art, the East Coast, West Coast. Got it. <laughs> so Jimmy, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna unmute to laugh. <laughs> <laughs> Jimmy, you have the same question. Would you like me to repeat it? Yeah, yeah. Go ahead and repeat the question. Okay, let me do that. Let me. Um. So yeah, um, how does an organization or institution with a history of in inequity shift its historical uh, narrative to serve communities that they're unfamiliar with? Yeah, so well, first I will say that all institutions have a lot of work to do, including those that already work with underrepresented communities. So I just wanna get that off the cuff right away. Uh, the number one thing that I think answers a lot of the panel questions today is who stands to benefit the most from this labor? Mm -hmm. uh, so, for example, if an institution shows a lot of artists of color, um, but rarely pays them or pays them a modest fraction of their overall budget, um, but then that same institution uh, applies for a lot of grants and gets a lot of donations for doing this type of work, then that's not equitable. So we have to look at what that distribution of funds is. Um, in order for institutions to make a shift uh, that is more than symbolic, we need to answer that question. Whom does this labor benefit? And Lucy got into this as well in terms of reputation and compensation. Um, we also need to look at uh, what we're up against. Um, one of the things that uh, I don't think we dig into quite enough is just what the relationship between the arts is with 
nonprofits, the arts are very deeply intertwined with nonprofit institutions. And nonprofits were built on a puritanistic notion of charity. White men colonized and ravaged other nations, and white women founded charities to help impoverished people whose lives were destroyed by their husbands' wars. Um, and so that's the foundation of the nonprofit structure in society that today exists as a tax break for commerce and for the wealthy. And so knowing that, we need to think about how we can use the existing structures that we have to close social gaps. And that like the foundation of this is flawed. The foundation of the nonprofit institution is flawed. We're not going to change that overnight, but perhaps the greatest function of the nonprofit uh, can be the closing of social gaps. And so you know, we look at both short-term and long-term ways that we can do that in the short term, we can move away from honorariums towards compensation. The amount that people are willing to pay for something changes when they stop talking about it as, as an award or as a prize and start talking about it as fair compensation and wages. Um, we can build, build in show fees for every artist that gets an exhibit, uh, especially at the local and regional level. Most galleries don't compensate artists for exhibiting. Um, and especially this is where the nonprofit has a leg up. Nonprofit institutions can fundraise specifically to compensate artists for exhibiting. Uh, we can hire diversity consultants. We can hire diverse contractors as the design agencies and the photographers that, um, that galleries work with. I've seen it a number of times where uh, a gallery will work with an artist of color, but then everybody who's designing all the promotion is still white. Um, we can pay our interns. I'll put, put another plug out there for that one. Um, in the long term, we need to hire people of color into salaried roles, into decision-making and leadership roles. Uh, we need to have diverse boards that are majority people of color, not just one or two people of color and say a board of 10. Uh, we need to diversify the people that, uh, that uh, the people of color that we work with. Um, so if we're constantly working with the same go-to people of color that everyone else is working with, that's not actually diversity. That's tokenism. Mm -hmm. um, and for nonprofits specifically, nonprofits can model how artists should be treated in the industry. And I think this relates to all what, what like Lucy is saying as far as like the market and, and our relationship with capital. Uh, businesses and other organizations look to nonprofits to know what's fair. And so again, if we can focus on the role of the nonprofit as its job being to close social gaps, then others can look to that example. And and I'll say it one more time, in everything we do, we need to answer the question, whom does this labor benefit? Yeah, thank you. And I'm, and I'm gonna say, hashtag show me the board. <laughs> That's the new thing. There's time for the uh, panelists to open up and just respond either to the question or to Lucy or Jenny. I had a, I had a thought, which was you know, having worked at, um, in public programming departments at like like major art museums, I think one one place where that question, whom does this labor benefit, gets lost is in like the lack of data and what sometimes feels like a willful uh, like desire to not gather the data that would be necessary to answer that question, right? Like so, who's coming to the programs? who's visiting, what's the average income, and where are the people who, who we might want to reach, or you know, why aren't we reaching them? Like all of that requires tons of data that I think 
you know, then we get into like, it's too expensive or we don't have the time or we don't have the person on staff who could gather that data. And so that's, I think, where that gets lost. And then the question doesn't get answered and people can feel like maybe they're reaching people that they aren't actually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, does anyone else want to jump in? I, I wanna oh oops, see, I didn't follow the rules. Sorry. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna mute myself. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Okay, go ahead, Michelle. Yeah. Um yeah, and I, I I'm not gonna form such an articulate response to issues around data, labor, compensation. I, I'm very concerned about transactionalism um, that happens with institutions um, and artists. Um, you know, uh, who does this labor benefit? It needs to benefit artists, first and foremost, right? And what does that benefit look like? I'm not always sure that it needs to be transactional payment at the end, um, that kind of recognition. It may be freedom. It may be a way of um, providing an artist with an opportunity, a place, a space, a location in which one can further their own interests, their own artistic interests. And that may be more important often than um, uh, a, a kind of honorarium, a paycheck, um, um, a kind of transactionalism that happens. Um, you know, I talked to Kerry James Marshall quite a bit about transactionalism, um, particularly with his mural um, at uh, the Garfield Park Library that the city of Chicago decided to leverage because his work now is many, many millions of dollars. And they commissioned him in 1987 for $10,000. Um, and the city uh, you know, rose to that kind of occasion, he's never going to make a public mural again because of what happens in this kind of transactionalism. So this is a concern I have amongst us. I don't, you know, it's just a balance, I think, to some of the very insightful um, um, you know, comments that everybody else is making. Uh, Lucy, did you want to? Um, I think I think what Michelle said about transactionalism I think is 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 definitely on key um, and and I think it's going to take a lot of sort of speculative work to think of outside of the the realm of 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 you know what what constitutes an ethical exchange um, I think that I think money has to be part and parcel of that conversation um, I think because there is such um an unevenness when it comes to you know uh class right um and 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 i think it's 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 not a surprise that you know this sort of patron artist model works because a lot of artists are operating without capital and they need that capital um to become more visible and then thus gain more capital right um, but I, but I do agree with Michelle that maybe we have to sort of expand uh, uh, expand that model to um, include um, other other ways of honoring and and our artists right and other ways of caring for an artist and and I think that can go beyond money um, but I'm, I'm glad Michelle put that out there because I think it's a conversation that I think we're gonna to have to be very creative around. And, and I think that even kind of goes beyond just even the, the art market to just even thinking about our arrangements as people who participate in capitalism. What are the different kinds of 
models for sort of acknowledging each other's labor and 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 acknowledging acknowledging each other's value. And I, Polly, did you have something? I was. I've been just following on from Michelle and Lucy. I think there's a difference between good transactionalism or acceptable transactionalism and bad transactionalism. And because we do operate in a capitalist society, monetary compensation is essential, but I think it's only one piece in the resources that we need to provide to artists. Thank you. And I'm gonna um, keep moving because we have not, not a lot of time, but I'll go to the um, third question, which is going to be to, well, let me just put, um, Josh and Maureen, so let me just pull up my question. All right. Um, this is a, this is also from Tamika Word, this question. All right, so it says, um, this is for Milwaukee galleries in general. So considering your um, gallery's geographical location in one of the most segregated cities in the nation, and possibly in one of the most segregated wards in the city, how is your gallery considering equity via the gallery's artist representation programming and community outreach. So we can start with um, Josh, actually. Um, so this question isn't foreign to me <laughs> in any sense. So um, it's, it's, not, it's not something that I had to newly contemplate. I have been contemplating it for you know, my own structure uh, since our very beginning. Uh, but I, I can't help but um, unpack it by understanding why galleries end up where they end up in the first place. Um, and it's for economic opportunities and, and uh, just like artists, you know, curators are looking for affordable spaces to uh, pursue their practices. And uh, like it or not, that, that ends up in low-income neighborhoods. Um, now this may seem innocent from the creative perspective, but it can have uh, pretty high level impacts that we're just not aware of um, on the community itself. I mean, we're bringing uh, a practice uh, into uh, a neighborhood that is unfamiliar with what we do, and it's inherently going to not be a place that feels welcome for them. Um, so um, I guess, uh, you know, we, we put ourselves in these, these areas so we can perform uh, and operate just as successfully as prestigious galleries. And, uh, you know, we're talking uh, from my own experience, these grassroot galleries that uh, just want to, to build themselves and, and be something. Um, it, you know, it's part of a, a, a puzzle that I don't think most young people understand when they're, when they're building their, their spaces. I'm, we built VAR right out of college and, and found, found a space uh, in a neighborhood and, and didn't really consider any of the other factors. We just, we just really wanted to do what we went to school for and somehow find a way to make money. Um, which I think is, is a question that everyone still asks, how do you make money in the art world? Um, and I, I think there, there needs to be a, a checking process to inhibit some of these things that take place. And I think there are, are certain things that are put in place by the city to sort of uh, 
have some form of checks and balances, but I don't necessarily think they're enough. Um, I, and again, speaking to my own experiences, um, you know, it, there's a very blanket, um, you have to, you, you send out a letter to all your neighbors um, to let them know what you're opening. Um, but that is only if you have a liquor license. You don't have to do that if you're just a gallery, which I, I find is interesting. They want you to tell your neighbors if you're selling alcohol, but they if, if it's out of that picture, your neighbors aren't informed, um, which I think is interesting. And it can easily be uh, something that, that, can, that can be changed on, on that level of things um, within the city. Um, and you know, our alderman in, in Walker's Point specifically is an amazing human, um, Jose uh, Perez. He gave me amazing advice when I jumped in. He said, go around to every door around your immediate neighborhood within a few blocks and introduce yourself and talk about what you do and uh, have them accept you. Don't just place your business in this neighborhood. And it was the most beautiful advice I've ever gotten. And it, it didn't occur to me that I had to do that. Um, I was just following the checks and balances uh, that, that the city gave me. Um, but uh, the city aside, I think there also needs to be checks and balances internally, which I think we're all reflecting on now. What, what does the gallery represent? Uh, when we bring it into a neighborhood, um, which has been accused of uh, quite a few times in things that I've read in, in online forums of being early stages of gentrification, um, galleries going to neighborhoods. I, we're not making people in the neighborhoods feel comfortable. We're, inviting people that understand our practice into these neighborhoods, generally wealthier people, um, into neighborhoods that they've never been into. It's sort of the gate uh, into starting uh, the interest in those neighborhoods. People haven't really explored Walker's Point before. Uh, you know, maybe there's a trendy restaurant or a trendy gallery, um, something like that. So it's, it's the question I ask myself pretty frequently is how do we, how do we stop this trend this historic trend into becoming a more positive growth for not only us but also the community itself um and i i think that um you know as as we're all sort of going through this reflecting period how do we change that internally how do we um have more equity for the artists that we represent i think uh I, Somebody said the other day that the baseline thing that you could do is represent uh, people of color or LGBTQ um, people in your gallery. That was like the low bar minimum of what you could do. Um, there needs to be so much more than that. And that's, that's what I've personally been reflecting on. And one thing that VAR has lacked on is, is how do we go outside of our walls? You know, I've, I've accused myself recently of, I just sit in my building and I don't go out and, and talk to people. I expect them to come to me, which is a very privileged thing to do. Um, and education is, is going to be something that, um, that I'm, I'm pushing forward. And I'm really excited to say that I've had dialogues with other teachers. I talked to Frank about it the other day, so he can, he can uh, 
let you know I'm not making stuff up, <laughs> um, but connecting with, with teachers and, and understanding how to connect with students in the high school level and not just the college level because we're already surpassing so many, um, so many students by just uh, touching on the college level. Well, thank you so much, Josh. And um, same question to you, Maureen, and then we'll, yeah, open it up. So um, I'll, I'll ask the question again. <laughs> so considering um, your geographical location in one of the most segregated cities in the nation and possibly one of the most segregated wards in the city, how is your gallery considering equity via the gallery's artist representation, programming, and community outreach? Right. So... With that question, I, you know, like many people in the art world, I have multiple roles, uh, multiple positions in the art world. Uh, so I'm going to answer this partially in my role as a curator and partially in my role as a director of an art program. Um, and uh, for my curatorial role that I'm talking about specifically, um, I was a curator at an art hotel. Um, and the art hotel is located in downtown Milwaukee. Um, and you know, when I took on uh, the role of curator there, um, I, I consciously was working to create a diverse collection, um, diverse in um, where the artists were in their career, so both emerging and established, uh, racially diverse, um, thinking about um, gender as well, uh, sexuality, um, but also one of the things I became very aware of uh, during my curatorial process there uh, was that the building that housed this collection, uh, a, a hotel, uh, it, it was a learning experience to me about uh, the racial inequity within the hospitality industry in general. So that was something I was really struggling with um, as a curator of, you know, I have control over this art collection uh, and, and I can show representation within that art collection but if this uh the structure of of this collection or the, the structure of the organization that's housing the collection is one where um it is mostly minorities working within the hotel structure at lower paid jobs uh whereas the hotel guests are primarily white and affluent coming in to look at this collection uh so it was it was something i spent a lot of time thinking about uh, of who is who is my audience with the, this collection? Is it the hotel guests that we are serving, um, or is it the people who work within this structure uh, and are seeing these works on a daily basis? Um, so I spent a lot of time thinking about uh, not only how I was going to educate the hotel guests about the art collection, but how I would educate the hotel staff about the collection as well. Um, and I think perhaps one of my most enjoyable experiences uh, working within uh, the hotel collection was that um, I, I was able to really connect with a lot of the hotel staff who uh, had no art education experience whatsoever, but the, the, the moment I was able to help them understand that uh, works in the collection were representing them, or uh, you, you know, I, there there were moments where there was a real connection with this art collection and and a sense of of ownership uh, from the hotel staff that I I wasn't really expecting, um, and that's certainly an area that I want to keep exploring. Uh, that that when 
the people working within an institution see themselves represented uh, in a positive light, that that's an area I want to keep exploring more. Um, but also within my role as the director of fellowship.art, uh, I am I'm stepping into this role where uh, we, we provide professional development and funding for artists in the Milwaukee area. And again, I'm hyper aware that Milwaukee is an incredibly segregated city. Um, so again, thinking about my role as the director of where are we directing these funds and professional development uh, resources. Um, and this year with, with the program um, is the first year I'm running it. Uh, and I, I spent a lot of time thinking about and selecting a jury that I was aware uh, would would be considering issues of equity within the jurying process. Um, and it was something that the jury discussed openly um, during the selection process for these artists of uh, what is our role as kind of these gatekeepers or legitimizers of um, artists' careers? Uh, what What is our role in, in making sure that uh, equity is represented within this group? Um, uh, also, another thing that I've been really thinking about with this program is, um, I, you know, we're here to help artists navigate the contemporary art world, uh, and that involves the contemporary art market, uh, galleries, museums, collectors, and as we've all just discussed, that is, um, you know, there are inherent equity issues within within that system. Uh, so. Part of what I'm hoping to learn from this panel is to come away with different ideas of how I can better help artists within Milwaukee navigate the contemporary art market in a way that increases equity, both for the artists and the Milwaukee art market. Nice, thank you. And we have time for behind, so throw in time for one person to respond to either um, a question or comments, if anyone. All right, Frank. Um, I wanted to piggyback off of, of what Josh um, talked about. I think one of the things that we don't do enough of is community outreach. And we have this expectation that if we build it, they will come. And that's not really the case. Um, I think if you really, if you really wanna make any type of improvements within you know, the galleries or institutions mission, you really have to go out to the community and meet these people. Um, oftentimes as, um, as an educator, I often get approached by um, art centers, institutions to, for, for me to bring my students into their place. But the reality is funding is always an issue, especially for field trips. And so if we wanna give students that type of, um, engagement or introduction to new um, programming, then I think it has to go both ways, you know. Uh, I think they, they really have to go into the classroom and, and it's kind of similar to what, what Josh had mentioned. One of the things that I suggested, because um, we don't have all the answers and there are things that, that make us feel uncomfortable and sometimes we often think if what we're going to ask, is that going to offend this person? Um, but if it's something that's really pending on your mind, I think it's really important to ask, you know, however it comes out, um, but in, in a professional, respectful way. Um, and uh, one of the things that I suggested is uh, 
potentially uh, creating a focus group and bringing a bunch of stakeholders from the community and just ask questions. You know, what would you like to see? Um, you know, have you been to the gallery before, et cetera? And I think by doing that, you're, you're opening yourself to feedback. Um, but it's one thing to execute this type of activity and it's different. It's completely different if you don't take any action. I think the, the action part is something that, that we can all improve on. I know as far as for myself professionally, uh, that's something that I'm working on as well. Yeah, and I could totally see like the focus groups being paid, especially I remember having to go downtown to Chicago. To, I got $50 as a teenager to do focus groups. And I, I made my way just for $50, but I felt important. So I think it's, that's, that's the point. I, I don't even remember the products that I was testing, but I felt important. So yes, I, I'm with you on that one. Yeah, I, I wanted to respond to, um, specifically to Josh's question about moving into cheap spaces. And I think this applies to any, anyone who's uh, run or curated a gallery um, in, in these spaces that are, that are on the cusp of gentrification. Uh, real estate. We don't talk enough about how to regulate the real estate industry. And, um, and this is just something that I just want to like put this bug in like everybody's ear. If we could somehow get every industry to get angry enough to realize that literally every industry is subsidizing the real estate industry, we might actually see a revolution. Um, that's and that's you know like that's art galleries like art galleries that are moving into affordable spaces to uh, to try and do the work that they're trying to do, and then that's tech companies. You know the only reason that you have to pay a software developer two hundred thousand dollars in the Bay Area is because of real estate. Sure, their coffee might be a little more expensive. But the thing that's really more expensive is the rent. And so if we can somehow tackle that problem, then I feel like that will have a domino effect on a lot of these other questions that we have as far as like the problem of us entering into these spaces and then gentrification following where these galleries go. Like, can you control the cost of rent and real estate? Can you regulate the real estate industry? Uh, that's that's a question I'd really love to explore. Yeah. Thank you. No. Um, so I'm gonna jot down. So I believe we're on. We're gonna be asking um, this question to Polly and to Leah. And um, this is also Tanika Word's question. She had three questions. She had a lot. But um, what does investing in equity with individual arts on a local level look like for? You, Polly. <laughs> Just well, I don't believe in, in personal experience, frankly. I think we live in a capitalist society and the, the particular deformations of American capitalist, capitalism have everything to do with racism. So I think this is not really a personal conversation. I operate in several areas of practice that are adjacent to the art world. I run a nonprofit. I run the Knoll Fellowship Program. Um, I'm a mentor to many young artists and older artists here in Milwaukee. But I think that, you know, all of this is about intentional decision-making and the only way you make structural change is by making structural change. Um, so that means redistributing resources, whether it's philanthropy, jobs, or other forms of support. It means redistributing power, decision-making, gatekeeping. It means redistributing opportunities, whether that's hiring, awards, or residencies. Um, the way this plays out in Linden, Linden's a relatively new organization. We opened in 2010 with a mission 
about turning it into a laboratory for artists and educators and students and member, members of the community. And by 2015, we decided to gather our work with artists of color into an initiative called Call and Response. So we began working very intentionally in 2015 with artists, scholars, educators, community members to construct a space for artists of color working across disciplines to celebrate the radical black imagination as a means to re-examine the past and imagine a better future. Uh, in developing call and response and defining Linden as a place where black creativity is nurtured and celebrated, we've been guard, guard, guided by artist Fuliemi Wilson's statement that black creativity is a unique technology of black agency, resistance, and survival. After the 2016 election, it became imperative to focus on what black artists require to survive and thrive. So to do this work effectively and sustainably, we learned that it was really necessary to interrogate and deconstruct the paradigms and processes of contemporary art production and presentation. Call and response is artist-driven. One artist calls another. It is inherently non-hierarchical. It provides space, resources, including money and time, often over the course of many, many years. We have artists who've been working with us since 2015 on this project to black artists to ruminate, to collaborate, to experiment, to envision legacy, which I think is an incredibly important thing for artists of color, and to make work if the moment is right. Uh, at the most practical level, we put money into the hands of black artists to do what they need to do. Uh, taking the long view, as we have, allows us to invest in building relationships, relationships formal and informal, that provide that solid base from which we can amplify the voices of artists, organizers, and activists. In terms of personal practice, I keep my door open, I move as much as I can in the local world, though not at all right now during the COVID time, and I listen a lot. Um, I've always believed that if there's one thing that nonprofits can do in a capitalist society, they can redistribute wealth. I personally hate raising money, but every time I write a grant, I feel that I am engaging in the good work of redistributing wealth. Um, I'll talk really briefly about the Null Program, which I began in 2003, because it's an interesting microcosm of what goes on in the art world. From the beginning, it was an extremely intentional program from the beginning, those who've watched this program from the beginning, the, the, jurors, the juries have always been diverse, intentionally. They've always been majority women, intentionally. Uh, but that is not to say that you can expect diverse juries to choose diverse artists. And for many, many years, you know, the results of this blind jurying process was that they would choose white male artists pre predominantly. And it wasn't until I would say the last five, maybe six years that people began to shift the way they looked at the art they were seeing here in Milwaukee and to begin to consider uh, artists who they never would have considered. And I, you know, I don't blame jurors. Jurors are trained in particular ways. They're, they have shared ideas about what represents good contemporary art. Uh, and I think those have shifted radically in the past several years, you know, um, and the, the result has been many, a much more diverse group of, of fellows over the, you know, since, since that shift started occurring. 
We are extremely explicit about equity with the, with the Knoll Fellowship. We are constantly, from day one, we've been trying to level the playing field. We're probably one of the few fellowship programs in the country that still allows people to apply on paper, for instance, not on computers. Uh, we, we do workshops in communities rather than in just downtown locations. And we engage in, a, just like at Linden, in an enormous amount of relationship building to, to, to support this program. Um, and the final thing that I think is really important is that the program was designed to benefit as many people as possible, not just the people who win, but also the applicants and the general public. So all of that was choreographed into the program from the beginning. And, um, you know, I think it's been an interesting process and a way for me certainly to develop relationships with artists that have allowed me to, to look at questions of equity really closely over many years. Okay. And Leah, um, same question, um, which is, let me repeat it. Um, what does investing in equity within the visual arts on a local level? Is that the right one? Yeah. Yes. Okay. <laughs> look like for the panelists. Okay. Um, you know, it's funny because Frank literally said exactly what I wanted to bring up, which is that um, in terms of addressing diversity and equality within the context of museums, um, I think the attitude has really largely been one um, of if you build it, they will come. It's like a mentality, right? And that means in a practical way, um, all we have to do as an institution is to reorient uh, curatorial planning to bring in artists of color, to create more accessible and sensitive educational programming, and in some cases to uphold a free admission policy, which lets us then say that the museum um, is eliminating financial barriers to access. And yes, I think that implementing all of those strategies is really important and can definitely make a difference and has made a difference. Um, but what's interesting is that when a museum fails to see a significant or sustained investment in the organization by people of color, there's also this tendency to say, well, you know, we tried and um, we built it. We thought they'd come. They didn't come. We tried. And that's done instead of really going back to the table and looking even deeper to understand what really needs to be done structurally. Um, and that's a really, that's a much harder um, process because it demands a fundamental and internal shift um, in perspective about how museums are traditionally structured and what the museum's responsibility is to the community or the communities it purports to serve. Um, and so when people criticize museums for being institutions of white supremacy, um, I don't disagree in a lot of ways, right? Absolutely, the entire nation and institutions were built on the, on the basis of, of white supremacy. And I think that's a really important conversation to have. Um, but I think the reason why this panel discussion has been so valuable for me at least, is that the conversation that I'm more interested in having is how can we change, right? And um, what are the immediate and actionable and implementable changes that we're able to make now? Um, and more importantly, I think, and this is what Polly hit on, is what are the long-term changes that need to be made, the slower changes that maybe aren't gonna be as immediately visible to the public? Um, and what we've talked about so far in this panel um, 
you know, are some of the, what we've been thinking about also, I think, you know, hiring people of color, obviously electing more people of color to boards. Um, I think this reallocation of resources is incredibly important. Um, funding fellowships, um, opportunities or, you know, eliminating unpaid internships. Um, prioritizing people of color when acquiring work for permanent collections in a museum, right? And we've hit on this a little bit and it's like such a, it's a beast of a topic, but rethinking the entire structure of nonprofit funding. Um, and I brought up that book, which I think has been really interesting, um, The Revolution Will Not Be Funded, that uh, the, the book that I've been reading. And, um, but from a, from a purely kind of curatorial standpoint, um, what I've been thinking a lot about and, and researching is um, how to really shift towards a more fluid curatorial practice. And we've talked in this um, panel about the gatekeeping, right? And the, um, the legitimizing and how do we, from a curatorial role, um, how do we how do we how do we fix that right i don't i don't have the answers um but i think that you know part of part of the solution would be to you know start looking beyond this sort of standard mfa or or gallery pipeline to to find talent right um i think it involves like polly said again um developing these really genuine and ongoing partnerships and relationships with black um, and POC communities, leaders and organizations and establishing like fundamental trust there, um, listening and understanding the kinds of work that people wanna see, the kinds of narratives that they wanna, that they wanna see represented at museums um, and really opening up this process to allow space for a more um, collaborative curatorial process. Um, and I think that that's a, that's, it does, it takes a, a total shifting in, in how to approach a, a job, but I think it's really important work to be done. Yeah, awesome. So um, we actually have time for the group to respond. We don't, but we do. Um, and then I'm gonna leave us early, so <clears throat> anybody who wants to, yeah, respond to that I question. wanna respond. Okay. <laughs> Um, I'm, I'm really interested. I, I, as soon as I get off of this chat, this discussion, I definitely want to find that book that Leah was recommending. The, the revolution will not be funded. The revolution <laughs> will not be, will not be funded. I think they should also include the revolution will not be programmed away. Um, I, <laughs> I think I've, I've just noticed at the fatigue that, um, I've, I've been feeling, I think a lot of people have been feeling where cultural institutions, museums, art galleries, nonprofits depend on programming to fix these structural issues. Um, and I, I really um, uh, admire what Polly said about, you know, her referring to sort of relationship building that, that takes years, right? Um, it's, it's not, you're not going to fix these problems with a black square and you're definitely not going to fix these problems with, um, uh, you know, 
trying to bring bring in as 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 many black and brown bodies into your space as you can and I, and i think there there also had there has to be this conversation i think this is not the 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 the, the, the this could be a whole other form about you know the the politics of representation and and how much weight we put on um on um sort of making these very cosmetic changes um and 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 assuming that that's going to sort of fix these sort of long standing issues um i i've been following religiously the the show show the boardroom on instagram because you know you go through these these um profiles of these of these um organizations and there is not one uh uh diverse face and or or they or or the 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 um people they hire to sort of fill these diversity quotas end up in human resources or <laughs> um uh community engagement um, and I think that there's going to have to be a radical shift. People are going to, it's not only that people are going to have to be brought on, but people are going to have to say, I'm going to let my position go. And I don't think people are ready to have that conversation. Um, and, and I, and I, I, I'm not quite sure if that is a pipe dream or, you know, um, but, but there's going to have to be a conversation there, 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 there isn't going to be a world where program are going to, programming is going to solve all of our issues. They're going to have to be, um, uh, there's going to have to be change that goes all the way up and, and people are going to have to sort of wrestle with sort of even longstanding ideas of meritocracy and, and who, de who, who deserves what role and, um, um, and I'm, I'm interested in, in, in people in, 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 in spaces that are, that are trying to have that conversation. Um, I'll leave it at that. I, I don't really have a, a solution to that, but I mean, I've been thinking about, for example, you know, what if we had boards that were actually made up of, you know, the communities that these institutions claim to serve, right? Why does it have to be based on how much money you have in your pocketbook, right? Is there any way to have maybe a community member in, resi in residence at these spaces that actually get paid, right? Um, and, 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 there, and in that case, there isn't that sort of, um, there's a more sort of permeable, um, um, uh, a permeable sort of line between the institution and the community that, that can, you know, um, operate in a more sort of um, transparent way. But I'm trying to think about what models are out there. And I know that programming has been talked about and, um, and diversifying, diversifying collections to, to have constituents be represented and see themselves in these collections. But the revolution will also not be collections away, right? It's, 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 it goes beyond, you know, the sort of, it's not, it goes beyond this, I think is what I'm trying to say. And I'm going to meet myself. <laughs> Michelle, you had your hand raised. <laughs> yeah, just, just quickly, um, and just following up on what Lucy's saying, and I'm really liking how you're thinking, Lucy. Um, there's also a really great piece in The Baffler called The Revolution Will That Be Curated by Thomas Frank. And that's uh, uh, 
worth taking a read. Um, but scale comes to mind uh, when we're thinking about institutions, um, whether it's scale of programming, the amount of programming institutions are taking on, or whether it's scale just in terms of thinking about the bureaucracy of an institution. I'm circling right back around to talk a little bit about admission to uh, not-for-profits, whether they're museums or sorts of uh, um, ticketed uh, uh, museums, collections of such. Um, you know, there's been a lot of studies, particularly as the Met started charging um, for those who live out of a certain radius um, in New York. Uh, and, you know, admissions really accounts for very little of an operating budget. Um, and we need to understand that. And, you know, so I start thinking about scale and, you know, just simply we think scale, the bigger, the better, the more powerful. Um, not at all. I think we need to rethink about the think scale, scale of our institutions, the influence what um, institutions can do with different sorts of uh, um, senses of scale. That's all I wanted to add. Awesome. And so we just want to acknowledge um, An left because he had a meeting at right at noon. So we just want to thank you, An, for being here. Um, so my next question is actually for Kylie, Michelle. And Frank, so um, this is, hold on, sorry. All right, this question, how can we use our platforms to uplift voices of the movement happening right outside our doors? And I believe, Kylie, you first. So to me, this feels so like personal to start off with. I had a talk with, um, one of my favorite artists and we we're talking about, you know, everything that's happening right now and, you know, with the pandemic and Black Lives Matter and climate change. And she was saying something that just felt so, it, I think about it, I, I've thought about it every day since she said it. And she was said, the problem right now is like, our minds are infected and that's, and it, they're infected. And it's, it's the way that things have been going in the world and the way we think and, We've been so conditioned. Um, and so I just want to start off with that. It just, it feels so heavy and impactful. Um, you know, I think we need to listen. I think everything starts off on a personal level. You know, we need to learn and unlearn and, and recognize that our minds are infected and the way things are going in the art world and the world isn't okay. It's, we can't keep doing this. So we need to unlearn, um, you know, and what John had touched on, you know, being aware of the community, like <laughs> actually thinking, how have, has this gallery or this museum or collective impacted the community negatively and positively? I think it's really difficult to think about yourself impacting something in a negative way when maybe that wasn't your intention. I don't think most people go in with the intention of hurting people, but I think it's self-reflection is really a difficult, a difficult thing. Um, I think, you know, we need to combat racism and white supremacy and injustices as an organization, but also personally, you know, in our personal life. And when we are given preferential treatment, call it out, even if it benefits you. And I, I've seen it so, so often. Um, my partner and I have gotten into an argument about this. And I, you know, you need to call it out. It, 
it's not okay to, to not have that discussion because when we're not talking about these things, they continue to be woven into like the fabric of our culture and of whatever organization we're working in and our lives. So I feel like that is paramount. Um, you know, it's not just about protesting. It's not just about a black square. It's not just about donating, you know, to organizations, activist organizations, you know, we can't just slap a bandaid on. It needs to be something we live. And, you know, you'll see that, you know, if the people in the gallery are talking about racism and injustices and fighting against it, that will show in the organization. And I, so I think everything is very, very personal. And, you know, what we've been talking on, you know, hiring more people of color, our boards being diverse, um, but, you know, not just having an exhibition. It was when one of the articles that we were reading, um, you know, what does it mean if we just have exhibitions that are diverse and not making long-term commitments to um, diversity? It's saying, you know, you're only worth this. You're not worth a long-term investment. And you know that's something else we need to be cognitive of, um, and also using our platform responsibly. Um, it's so important. I've definitely seen some Instagram posts uh, and people kind of coming for institutions. It's like, what are you doing? Like, you need to be using your your platform responsibly and actually talking about what's going on. Um, I think that that is also so important because you know if we're not living it if we're not talking about it what are we doing and that's that's all i got <laughs> yeah thank you and michelle same question how um we asked the question which is um yeah um i'm gonna i'm gonna parse the question actually okay. um, to, to answer it i think efficiently effectively um so how can we use our platforms to uplift the voices of the movement um, right outside our door? So, uh, you know, when I, first of all, when I think about voices, you know, voices to me mean artists, period. It always has. For the past 20 years, it's artists, um, uh, first and foremost. And then also, I just want to talk about what's outside your doors. When we talk about the local, you can't have the local you can't have locality without regionality and without worldliness. So that's really important to me to see how those things thread together and to be conscious of them all the time. So that's just how I would, that's how I understand that question. Um, you know, the suburban and the poor farm, um, you know, these artists run exhibition spaces, you know, what's important about them is that um, not only is it supporting artists and their work first and foremost, um, and always being free to anybody who wants to engage in it, um, but to commit to artists and experimentation, to put resources in front of them when I can, if they are available, to expect nothing um, um, from our position. Um, but most importantly, and this, you know, this, this is, I find myself sitting in front of um, granting committees all the time, um, asking uh, for support, but the support only comes with a certain kind of expected outcome. And that outcome, when it is up to me and Brad to run the suburban and the poor farm, we have no outcomes except for that 
that the artist uh, uh, wishes, right? And those are various, um, they've always been various in the last 20 years. Um, but so much money now comes with this condition. And, um, you know, that's really a problem. I, again, in this past uh, um, month when I was on the other, uh, with, on another Zoom conversation um, with the Esther, the Esther uh, Gates, the Esther Gates and I were talking about not only outcomes, but um, how time is played. We will give you this amount of money and this outcome will happen with this time frame. What if we pull that time frame back? So for instance, if one is giving a, given a Mary Noel Award, you know, there is the expectation that there will be an exhibition in a year from now. So it's on a year platform. So thinking about time differently, not artists can, not all artists, you know, it's good for them to work within these kind of sets of times. Um, so really thinking about, um, um, I don't thinking about these almost abstract structures within how we think about what we do and looking at them as well as just looking at you know the bodies in proximity. Um, I know that's a little bit rambling. It's just so much for me to think about. Um, but again, I can only answer this question by talking about voices when I when you know in this question, voices for me are artists and outside my door is not just locality. And that's really important. And that's that's been clear for a long time. You know, um, I wanna say one quick thing to the I think the most profound questions that were evoked in this whole set of questions were um, two of them. And one uh, they're both in question number four. Are you equipped to address the problem and do you even understand the problem? They are the most profound questions that can be asked and you know, I can kind of answer them and it's not a disclaimer It's actually a philosophy and I have to say uh, absolutely not. Um, I'm not equipped to address the problem I am one person one body one subjectivity um, Do I understand the problem? Absolutely not. Um, I'm learning, you know, how I understand white privilege and systematic racism um, when I read Bell Hooks in 1989 is very different when I saw the murder of George Floyd by the Minneapolis law enforcement. And it's going to be very different, you know, after we leave this Zoom meeting and I think about it, um, you know, while I'm in the studio this afternoon. So it's really important that, um, you know, we understand the kind of, that the inability to kind of claim these things um, and not, uh, not listen. I've heard that by many of you. Yeah, thank you. And Frank, same question. So I, I, think I picked this question for, um, for a specific reason. Um, and uh, I think the looking at this question, um, kind of to piggyback off of what Michelle said, um, we, have to we have to define what up uplift the voices mean. And my definition is definitely different than anyone else's. And then I, I, I immediately started thinking about education. And I'm a firm believer that education should be at the forefront of everything that we do. Um, and it's, it's just something that, that I've been um, trained to. I believe in it and whatever, I, whatever programming I do, that's my first and foremost objective is to educate the people that walk through the door or they open up uh, the Artos magazine that I, that I self-publish. Um, and so some thoughts that, that I've been really thinking about, um, and this may seem kind of like going in a circle because a lot of the discussion kind of hits upon some of the stuff that I want to uh, talk about. But um, I really believe that um, regardless, you know, regardless of what hats we wear, we definitely have to analyze the fundamentals of our own programming and really think about who we are serving in terms of the community. Uh, is the community 
people that you know have signed your guest book or the community that's you know within a mile from you is it further is it national whatever so i, th I think um kind of figuring out what the community means to you is it's kind of a a roadmap of what you can do um another uh thought that kind of popped into my mind is um kind of similar to is it kylie um yeah <laughs> I, definitely, I definitely do think in order for for any change to happen we have to take it personal um as 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 human as humans and when we take things personal when we take, take things take things personal uh it really makes you think differently and not just professionally but i think if we're able to connect our our own personal beliefs with what we do professionally it can make a, a, a huge impact and i think sometimes when we start showing more about our personal self we tend to be a little more vulnerable than we normally would be and i think that's something that really has to embed in any any potential changes we have to be vulnerable and i don't have all the answers you know but i'm willing to learn i'm willing to listen and that's kind of the uh, the thing that i've been kind of um the theme that's kind of been um swimming in my head is just the idea of, of taking the time to listen and asking people for their opinions and I realized sometimes, you know, we're kind of going from eight to 60 in like two seconds, you know, tunnel vision, but we really, really have to think in terms of a 360 experience and really include everyone in that conversation. Um, as uncomfortable as it may be, we have to make the, fir the first step. Um, and uh, and the, la the last thing that I, that I want to say is just, um, taking the time, you know, to make those changes, whether it's within your own staff or the artists that you represent, uh, but be, be open um, to suggestions. And um, the nice thing about what we do um, is we can adapt to these changes, but knowing that it's, it's something that isn't gonna happen like tomorrow, you know, change has to be slow steps, you know, think of it more as a long-term goal um, and I think if you include more people in that goal, then there's a good chance that it, it can be a success and everyone, you know, benefits from it. Um, you know, and that's why I'm kind of a, a, also a firm believer of community outreach. You know, we really have to go out there and, and really engage people in conversation, you know, beyond just the email or the social media posts. Um, we really have to make the time um, and meet these people face to face um like just one of the, one of the things that that i had mentioned previous um earlier this week is um when we run our own spaces we're in our spaces kind of you know what josh had mentioned earlier it's important for us to be visible and by attend other other institutions other galleries um their events and i think being present is definitely another step of uh, of doing that so yeah thank you and actually so we're we're behind on time but that's okay because i think i appreciate you guys staying for a little longer i don't want to cut anyone off because you guys are saying such amazing powerful statements so we have time for you uh for someone one person to just kind of respond i i'd have to back what you know i think kyle was talking about and what frank kind of touched on was a huge struggle for me uh, in the beginning, when in regards to to how to support the movement, um, our just like our you know us behind all of our our walls, 
our social media platforms are no different. They're very insular. Insular. I'm trying to say the right word. Um, and, you know, the people that follow us are the same people that come into our galleries. So what's the point in, you know, putting a black box on our Instagram post or, or making a heartfelt message when the only people that are going to see it are the same people that see our exhibitions. And uh, that's why I think in the beginning uh, when, you know, people were saying, why are you being so quiet? I didn't, you know, personally didn't think that would be effective in any, any realm, like putting that message out, out there. But um, one thing that uh, dawned on me uh, a little later on is, is um, that, you know, galleries for the most part are, are pretty quiet in general. We push uh, the messages and the imagery of our artists, but we ourselves are, are pretty much in the background, just, just pulling the levers and the switches. So uh, it also kind of bothered me once it was pointed out that, you know, we shouldn't be using artists as objects to push our agendas. We should be, for maybe the first time ever, having voices of our own as a gallery entity and communicating our support um, without an artist statement, without an image of struggle. Um, so I just wanted to add to that. All right, I'm muting. <laughs> Anybody want to respond to that? I think that was a lot, actually. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think, Josh, I was thinking about that, uh, that there was a struggle. I remember just watching it. Everybody was like, everybody's doing stuff wrong. Everybody's doing, I'm like, everybody's just commenting on everybody doing things wrong. But I know I like seeing solidarity. So I get it if you feel like you're preaching to the choir. For me, it was great. For every institution I've ever worked with, I literally was, I was literally going around trolling everybody's Instagram saying, say something. Because I needed you to prove that you were anti-racist. I didn't need you to just be like, I'm, I'm not racist, what's the problem? So for me personally, I was like, I need you to say something. And I helped people write statements. That's how much it, it meant to me. And it's funny because when people posted stuff, everybody went in and said, it's about time. <laughs> So nobody got in trouble for saying I care about black lives. <laughs> it's quite the opposite. So I appreciate the, the, the thought and consideration that you went through and just like, oh, okay. Um, but no one was wrong. I think that was the issue. Everybody kept making it seem like every, somebody was, everybody was doing something wrong. I'm like, hey, we are all like thinking together. This is good. Let's not shame each other in who's doing it quick enough and Blackout Tuesday. And so yes, I, I, I love the contemplation that everybody had to take. Yeah, it it was uh, it became really obvious right away, you know, like oh, we just put something out. But uh, yeah, our you know the the work that we represent can be abstract, but our 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 thoughts and and what we believe in should not be. We put that out. Okay, thank you. And this question goes to John Ribbonoff. Um, it is um, so. The question is a question about collective action. What are the strategies for artists to unite around collective actions, boycotts, et cetera, when the dominant art world is so much about competition, the individual, and behaving a certain way to be palatable to galleries and patrons? That, to me, that was a tough question. I was like, okay, John got this one. Woo! <laughs> well, um, I, the first thing that came to mind, Tyan, is that, um, you know, 
what you're doing right now is basically answering this question. It's, you know, bringing together a group of people, having the conversation, creating, you know, as artists and um, artists driving um, these different groups and leading the conversation and you're taking charge and, and basically um, answering the critique that a lot of uh, our panelists have had about institutions is you're taking part of your own hands, you're bringing together the voices that you want, you're providing a platform, um, you're trying to get accessible and you're actually asking the really hard questions. So, um, um, so yeah, to me, like you answered the question for us in, in a lot of ways. And um, I thank you for that. And I'm um, honored to be in this company of all these panelists that you brought together. So thank you for this. Um, um, so after hearing what Polly <laughs> mentioned about like the only way to answer to, you know, like solve the problem is to, you know, um, break down the system and, and start over with the new system, which seems very uh, overwhelming on an individual scale. Um, that said, um, others have also mentioned and on, I think talked about early on, like um, creating these different ecosystems and that like, what can we do on an individual scale? So I, I thought about um, things in terms of, um, uh, so promoting dialogue. Um, so whether that is like this or on an individual scale and um, even, and I think Michelle talked about scale having conversations, um, correcting people in our worlds. I've had conversations with people who are on boards and trying to tell them they are racist and acknowledge that, that we're, the, the whole system that we're operating in is, is racist. And a lot of people are still struggling with this. Um, we have a somewhat progressive group of people talking right now. Um, but uh, overall, um, we all know people in our lives and we do business with people in our lives and we have professional and personal uh, relationships where we can do a lot of um, we can have a big impact just by um, correcting people and speaking up um, so um, another thing is um, on an artist level we can solve problems like at a very small scale I saw people at protests who transformed their bicycle into a garbage and recycling pickup unit and they were you know from artists I think oftentimes we don't always um, realize that how good problem solvers are compared to like other roles in in, um, in society. And I think that like, even on a very small scale, solving little problems in our world, I think can actually um, be a huge contribution. And obviously this idea of equity and who's paying for that, we're, we're volunteering and we're, 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 we're trying to fix our society without really getting a, a appreciation necessarily financially or otherwise. I think that's a major problem. But I do think that as, as a way of like giving to society without having to like uh, donate or do these other things, like just with our problem solving is, is a huge way. Um, um, from another standpoint that I think small galleries and even big institutions and um, artists themselves can, um, can help um, kind of um, work with the movement is, um, you know, where we buy our supplies from, where, where we support. So like, at the gallery, we stopped buying from Uline years ago because we found out they were supporting Trump, you know? So like, it might be a little bit cheaper or convenient to um, support different um, or buy different supplies or source different materials from places. But um, if we want to think about like the big system that we're operating in, we're going to have to um, make some, you know, work a little harder and make sacrifices so that we can align. And I think it's the same thing that we that, uh, many have touched on on the larger scale of an institutions, you know, like, you know, where are they getting their money from and where, where's the money going? Um, if we can try to um, be a leader on a, a small scale, um, we can, you know, we can have 
bigger, we can kind of ask the other institutions to be more accountable. And as we kind of gain more power through our careers, um, that can be part of our lifestyle and our practice. And it won't be something that we're having to correct later. It can be something that we're used to. And it's, it's just part of how we um, um, uh, operate. Um, I think uh, another thing that a lot of people talk, touched on um polly mentioned you know she has an open door and um that um she listens a lot um i think listening is huge and i know i'm in a place right now where um apologies for most of this panel i've been you i've been learning a lot from all of you um but i i i, I really think that um i'm in a time <laughs> in my career that i'm really learning that there's so much that there's so much more that I have to learn and that, that, that my, you know, um, there's a lot of voices that I, I just need to, to, to listen to. Um, and, um, another big thing is to show up to things. So a lot of times, you know, uh, this idea of we liking or commenting something on Instagram makes us feel like we're, that's a very superficial kind of like a version of, um, changing our behavior or something. And, and in a way by participating in these, social media platforms that are owned by the worst companies uh, on the planet who um, are, you know, oftentimes responsible for some of the really horrible political um, situations that, uh, that we're in. Um, I think showing up to things in real life, obviously right now, if it's healthy and if you can do it safely, um, but also um, to showing up to things like this and um, being part of conversations that both you agree with and that you disagree with. Um, I think expanding um, our world to a point where, you know, we're not just in a comfort zone all the time. Um, and then lastly, um, I think that um, as artists, um, that we can, we can uh, challenge the inherited cultural, um, the inherited, the, the culture that we inherit. So like, um, I think part of the question posed this idea that, you know, like, um, the commodity of art has become very like individualistic and very like, or it, it's about an individual creating a, a, an item that, you know, um, and maybe pandering to institutions. I think um, I'm interested in more like pluralizing authorship. And as an artist, um, we can, um, we can change the forms that we work in and we can look to other forms, um, uh, older forms that kind of operated maybe before capitalism really became, uh, uh, what did I say, uh, like um, it's a sickness or something that we're infected in our minds. Like, can we, can we look at forms like um, food and different family structures and, you know, like, um, can we look at um, models like um, gardening and microbial systems and other social systems? Can we use those as forms for our, um, for our artwork and create structures? Um, I think as An said and, um, um, like, you know, how do we change an environment? And I think that like, for me, the decentralization of, of cultural authorship that's happened with um, how art has kind of left, you know, it's not only in New York right now, it, it, where it had kind of been for most, for a big chunk of the, um, the last century in American uh, cultural production, like, um, as it's moved to the smaller regions of, of the country in the same way, um, we, we, we can start to like change the format of art to be less about individuals and more about, um, more about communities and more about relationships and more about, um, systems. So, um, I guess everyone said like some really amazing things, um, on this panel and, um, and 
Um, I think that, oh, my, my last thought is that um, uh, uh, there's been, um, it was brought up the idea of representation, comp compensation, labor, value, and resources. And I think that was a really, uh, a lot of people had a reaction to something that um, Jenny mentioned just about um, uh, paying, paying everybody and everybody gets, um, you know, like um, mo there's monetary um, reimbursement. And I think that um, I propose maybe panel two might be about those topics and um, maybe Maureen can host that since you work at a incubator, uh, a, a capitalist incubator. Maybe you can uh, try to write some grants and raise some funds to pay the next group of panelists to uh, have a conversation about um, representation and compensation. Sounds good. Tan and I will work on that together. Awesome. And anybody want to respond to John? Yeah, Jenny. Yeah, I thought that John made some really, really great points. And I want to add a couple of things. One being that um, as far as artists organizing for collective action, I think there's an opportunity for more artists to take on roles of leadership. Um, I don't think that our current system educates a lot of artists that leadership is an option to them. They're typically used as an object, as Josh said earlier, uh, to be promoted in galleries and not actually the leadership themselves. So that being um, one thing. And that, you know, there was, um, I want to link together two things. Ann brought up legitimacy, and then Polly brought up how even when she invited diverse jurors onto, um, onto panels, they often would still choose white male artists. And that even artists of color are still educated in this system that, um, that prioritizes this myth of the solo male artist. And that makes it a lot harder for us to currently organize, right? Like if, if we're coming from this place that we think that we're all supposed to be operating as a solo genius, um, then, then you're not going to have people who are working collectively. Um, and so, um, one thing that John brought up that I want to respond to is that we, we are working in these communities where like, yes, in this panel, this is a pretty progressive panel and, and people are, uh, are engaged in the conversation on this topic, but we also all work with people who are not a part of this conversation and who are not, um, not as interested or, or just much more nascent in, um, in engaging with these topics and that, um, that there's a tricky space. Like we're talking about collective action and, and specifically collective action that often comes from artists. There's a space between the established institution and the grassroots organizer. Um, and for any of us, the longer we are in this work, the more likely we are to become embedded in the established institutions. Um, and our communities are small and they are tight knit. Um, and we tend to know everyone in our field. And so, um, one of our challenges in this is that we, in order to make progress, we, need, we do need institutions to adopt ideas that were once seen as radical. Um, and with that, those of us who are connected with established institutions and those of us as our careers continue to grow and become more established, we need to continue to remind ourselves of that and, um, and prioritize that it's it's very easy to just be comfortable it's um and it's also easy to shy away from conversations that could potentially put us in conflict with people in our field um and so again like as we become uh more established and we gain more influence we need to keep asking 
what are we doing to continue scrutinizing these, this work, invite uncomfortable conversations into our spaces, um, and fight for equity, even if it might potentially put us at odds with what the status quo is. Awesome. And we have, oh, sorry, Colin, go ahead. I just wanted to quickly thank uh, Jeannie for those comments and John. And, and, you know, I think the whole conversation about alternate models of organizing and, you know, looking at mushrooms and things like this are very interesting, but you need to put them in the context of a racist society where it's very likely that the mushroom next to you is going to be a white mushroom. And we need to um, intentionally seek out and diversify these communities, you know, because just because it's your community doesn't mean it's not uh, existing entirely within this racist structure. I just, that, that comment is funny, I'm <laughs> white mushroom next to you. I just visualized an actual white mushroom. Okay. <laughs> um, awesome. We actually, so we have our final question. Now, this is another question that I was like, this is a, okay, um, what will you do with this work? Question mark. Uh, will you recognize your superiority complex and receive consent from the group you want to help? Are you planning on a social, on social impact or are you trying to enact radical change? Are you equipped to address the problem? Do you understand the problem? Do you, this goes back to what Michelle was saying, but yeah. yeah. I mean, I think from my takeaway from being on this panel is that, you know, the part of the question where they say, do you even understand the question? Or something <laughs> along the lines of that. I mean, I think that's exactly what this panel is is we're, we're trying to figure out what work we still need to do. Do we even under have an understanding of the problem? Um, and I think, quite honestly, I think this as Tiana's work right now, uh, th this art project that she's created of getting a bunch of uh, leaders in the art world together to discuss this and gave us, you know, reading to do ahead of time. Uh, that in itself, I think, is is the work. Um, you know, this. I, I'm I'm almost thinking of this as as Tiana's, you know, uh, her her performance piece of can she get uh, however many of us were in this discussion to to actually sit down and do some self reflection some. Right. Some, some work, if you will. It is, a, it is a question and I think, and I think what will we do with this work? I probably is contingent upon, you know, what, what, what the, what opportunities present themselves and what challenges present themselves. You know, and I think that as far as this work is concerned, very much sprung out of a very, very, very specific event. You know, and and one that was uh, so traumatic that we sort of all had to sit back and and uh, or or step back for a moment and look at it uh, a little bit with a little bit distance, and uh, and kind of like really think about that rather than just assume our knee gut reaction was um, an effective one. And uh, this this might require a little more strategizing and it might require a little more insistence and it might require yeah just a little more contemplation well and i just want to say and i think i appreciate 
us talking and trying to have the answer as well. And it's okay that we don't. And I like you said that in the beginning, like, I don't know. And like, that is also, this was an educational moment too for all of us because I don't have the answers directly, but I think just trying to tackle such um, challenging questions. That's why I'm very appreciative to all of you. And I thank you so much for allowing this to go over, but don't want to stop something that's beautiful. On that note, we're wrapping up. And I, wanna, I just want to end with um, uh, two statements, one from uh, Deb Brimmer and then the other from Simone D'Souza. And then um, last statements from you guys. So I'm just going to read. Um, so Simone D'Souza is a Brazilian artist and curator, and she's the owner and direct, director of um, Simone D'Souza Gallery in addition in Detroit that started in 2008. And her statement, I just took this part because I thought it was very poignant. She says, as a person of color, I identify as Latinx. I do recognize that being Black in America is not the same um, um, as uh, being in any other race in America. Black people are most severely impacted by systemic racial injustices, and it is imperative that we do not let this moment pass without taking real action towards ending system systematic racism a social dysfunction that is ultimately impairing society's ability to achieve its full potential. So how does a gallery, large or small, play a part in, ch in changing this complex scenario? I believe it all starts with our deep, our own deep reflection that can lead to the creation of action items that we can put into place in our own realities. Simple questions such as, is our program or our programming inclusive enough? Are we engaging staff of color? And I'm gonna add, how are we engaging staff of color? And are we making sure that we are actively reaching out into the community to engage with new artists and practices rather than relying on talent that comes only through established institutions that we know are presenting a section of the population um, or only presenting just a tiny fraction of a population? Are we holding our partners, art schools, institutions, museums accountable to their commitment to equality as well. And of course, as an ongoing practice, individuality as a professional community, as we interact with artists, different audiences and collectors, we must embody zero tolerance for behaviors and language that perpetuate discrimination and violence against the black community. So that was Simone D'Souza. And then I'm gonna read Debs. Um, so these are two panelists that wanted, that really wanted to be on, but it's like, you know, we wanna write something because we can't, be there in person. So this is um, Deb Brenner, who uh, uh, founded the Portrait Society here in Milwaukee 11 years ago. She says, we all have blind spots, whether we know it or not. Facts. <laughs> Our challenge now is to ask more questions and try to keep in sight a world that is quite, that could be equitable, diverse, spirited, and alive. This time period is an urgent one. We can't go back to business as usual as a society. It will be deadening, and perhaps deadly. So what now, as the panel, you know, as we ask the panel? One thing I am contemplating newly is how to get out of the way. We all need to be allies, but artists of color need to tell their own stories, not through a lens of whiteness. If we own galleries and run institutions, we are, uh, we are used to being in charge. I think that there will be an increasing shift towards collective, or collectivity and community, to sharing and organizing principles, of projects where rigid structures give way to something more fluid. I thought those both were just really um, poignant statements. Did anyone just have anything to um, say as an end, as we end?
Thank you so much for putting this together. I, I think this is definitely something I needed is being part of a community, even if it's digital <laughs> and, <laughs> and, 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 and learning as much as I can. I mean, I, I definitely um, agree with several of you about not feeling like, like I have the answers, but I, I definitely also agree with you um Tiana that it's it's also important to sometimes speaking to the choir <laughs> can be can be comforting and um and uh yeah so thank you so much and and I I, I hope to be in touch with everyone on this on this panel awesome thanks for thanks for joining anyone else uh you know, I was just thinking about this again, still in terms of this being a giant performance piece that you just presented. <laughs> uh, but I, I was also just thinking about this in terms of um, the fact that this is being recorded uh, and that you want to share this with other people. Um, and, you know, I think part of that is really great in that it's taking this conversation beyond this small group of kind of like minded individuals. Um, but also, I. I like that it's kind of you are providing almost a snapshot of um, of this moment in time where uh, we as leaders in the arts community are are grappling with this issue and and I, I like that you know none of us are leaving feeling like oh I know exactly what I'm gonna do and how I can implement all this change um, but I, I think so often um, it, beyond the art world even, we don't really see the the thought process going into what's creating these new systems. Uh, we just kind of see, uh, here, here's the finished product or here's the model of the art world that we're going for. Um, and so often uh, people aren't brought into these conversations. Uh, so I, I think it's first of all important that you're sharing this conversation with other people. Uh, but also this is kind of serving as a record for ourselves uh, to come back to, to say, you know, I, I said these thoughts um, in, in this panel, am I living up to them? Um, am I applying what I said um, in, in this panel? So. Yeah, like, like its own checks and balances, I agree. Um, and no matter how big or small your role is in art world, we all play a part. And I think that, that that's interesting to communicate to students because they think they're not a part of the art world. They're just a student like, oh yes, you are. <laughs> you know, so, um, so I'm just once again grateful and so thankful if anybody else wanna have a last statement. I'll tell you my hopes, and I'll, I got you, Jenny. My hopes and to, to the viewers when they watch this is that you would start this conversation in your community and you would hold people accountable and um, you can invite people to a panel. And the great thing about virtual is anybody can come. All right, Jenny. <laughs> Yeah, I, I wanted to come back a moment to the title of this, focusing on what the role of the traditional gallery is, and that a lot of a lot of what's really pivotal in the conversation we had today is that we're talking about what is a white box gallery intentionally removed from the context of society. But what we're talking about here in terms of needing to change is understanding the context in which our galleries operate. So understanding the role of a gallery when it enters a neighborhood, understanding the relationship between a gallery and the value of real estate when neighborhood changes, uh, understanding our relationship with funding, understanding our relationship with the community and who believes they have access to these spaces. And that, like, that just seems like such a pivotal and important piece of this conversation that we're having, that when we're talking about 
changing the role of the traditional gallery. It's changing our understanding of it actually existing in a context with a living, breathing ecosystem. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you guys so much. You, I'm, I'm super impressed that you would stay an extra hour. Um, and so I'm going to stay on all the way to the end because that's what my Zoom etiquette told me to do. <laughs> First of all, thank you, John and Tina, so much for just like letting me railroad the whole thing and just getting out the way. So I appreciate it. Um, thank you guys so much again. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Awesome.